I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. We're glad that you're here with us today. Well, in this sermon series that we started last week, we're talking about practical matters. And what we mean by that is that we're asking questions about what it looks like to live as God's people in everyday life. Where the rubber meets the road, how does our identity as God's people, people redeemed and forgiven through the blood of Jesus, well, how does that play out in everyday life? What does that look like in an ever-changing world? Well, last week we talked about how living as God's people can require great wisdom and discernment in a world that is so technologically different from the world of the Bible. Now, the Bible doesn't address technology as directly as we might wish it did. But Romans does tell us to offer our bodies to God as living sacrifices, to practice wisdom and discernment and what things of the world we accept and utilize for the sake of the gospel and what things we intentionally reject. We can use much technological advancement in good and God-honoring ways, but we must also be aware of the dangers technology poses, that we can be tempted to worship technology rather than God. We can be tempted to depend upon technology rather than God. And we can be tempted to use technology just to feed the sins that so often hamper us. Well, today we shift to a more traditional topic for a sermon, but still a very practical area of life. And that, of course, is marriage. Now, marriage is practical in the sense that most adults will be married at some point in their lives and that your relationship with your spouse is such a massive part of who you are day in and day out. And even if you've never been married before, even if you don't plan to get married in the future, or maybe you were married at one time, but you're not now. The point is that the marriages of other people will even affect you in practical ways. So how can we develop a Christian vision of marriage that has a positive impact on us, on our families, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and the countless other people around us as well? So with that, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. If you're using our chair Bibles, this will be found on page 1. That makes sense. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. But before we read, let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that we have the opportunity, the privilege, the joy of coming here and worshiping together. Um, of praying together and taking communion together, being reminded of what it is that your son Jesus did for us on the cross, being reminded of who we are, that we're not the same people we were before because of what your son Jesus did on the cross. And on top of that, we have something so great to look forward to because of what your son Jesus did on the cross. It happened in the past, but it affects us in the present, and we have a wonderful reward to look forward to in the future. It's certainly not a reward that we could earn, not a reward that we deserve, but you give it to us freely, and we are so, so grateful for that. Father, I pray that those truths would not just be something that we figure out in our brains, but they would go down to the very core of our being, that knowing who we are because of Christ would affect our marriages. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we honor you, 
I pray that we would submit every area of our lives to you. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we go any further, we should talk briefly about some of the debates that are raging in our culture about marriage. Some suggest that the whole idea of marriage is completely backwards and outdated. So why really even worry about it? And even if someone still believes that marriage is still a worthy institution, then they might not believe that it should be monogamous, meaning that, hey, you know what? Each spouse should have some freedom to explore romance with other people as long as everyone agrees to the setup, right? Well, there are debates about the purpose of marriage. What is marriage really about? Is marriage a sacred covenant or is it more of a business agreement? Is it about sacrificial love Or is it about my own fulfillment or my own self-actualization or my own self-esteem? Is marriage about faithfulness or is marriage about romance? And of course, what about divorce? After all, if marriage is just a business agreement, then why not divorce when the agreement ceases to make economic sense? If marriage is just about self-fulfillment, then why not divorce when I don't feel fulfilled? If marriage is just about romance, then why not divorce when the sparks just aren't there the way they used to be? And, of course, there are debates about who should get married and who shouldn't. Who's to say it's only between a man and a woman? Who's to say it's only between two people? The point is that there is a significant amount of division in our culture about what marriage really is. But there's even division about marriage when it comes to to the body of Christ. And here's the thing about marriage. A culture's vision of marriage affects everyone in that culture. A culture's vision of marriage affects everyone in that culture. Thus, it is incredibly important that Christians not only be prepared to tell people what the Christian vision of marriage is, but we must also be prepared to show them what the Christian vision of marriage is in practical ways. And whether our culture respects that vision or vilifies that vision, our responsibility as God's people remains to tell and show what Christian marriage looks like. So when it comes to forming and displaying this Christian vision of marriage, I would propose that there are three passages that you simply can't avoid, three passages you have to talk about In the Bible. The first one is Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The second is Matthew chapter 19. And the third is Ephesians chapter 5. Now, before we read those passages, I want to make note that the timing of those passages is particularly important as we look to interpret and understand them. So consider the timing. For example, the Genesis passage occurs before the entrance of sin into the world. That's a big deal. That adjusts how you're going to read that passage. The Matthew passage is after the entrance of sin into the world. And finally, the Ephesians passage is after the death and resurrection of Christ. The timing affects how we understand these passages. So let's start in Genesis 1, verse 26, passage number 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So first things first. Man is qualitatively different from the animals. In previous times, that may have gone without saying. In some places, that may go without saying. But it needs to be said today that man is qualitatively different from the animals. From the very beginning, man is made in God's image. Animals are not. Now, that does not mean that God doesn't care about how we treat animals. God does care. We're called to have dominion over creation. We're called to steward creation. We're not called to exploit and dominate or destroy creation. But what we do read is that man is superior to animals in terms of their value in the eyes of God. Now, this is true of both male and female. Males and females are different, but both are created in God's image. Both are worthy of dignity and respect as image bearers of God. If you look in your Bible, that Genesis 1 verse 27 verse, you may notice that it's kind of set off to the side from the other words around it. It's kind of got some weird indenting going on. That's because it's kind of a form of poetry. And I heard one theologian say that when God creates man in the book of Genesis, it's the first time that we see God singing. God sings when he creates humankind because we are qualitatively different from the animals. So let's jump forward to Genesis 2, starting in verse 18. We see more details about these humans that God is creating. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked And we're not ashamed. So we start by seeing Adam, the first man, exercising authority over the animals by naming them. However, as he's naming them, it quickly becomes clear that Adam needs a helper. And these animals simply aren't sufficient for that role. So God, of course, steps into action. God acknowledges that it is not good for man to be alone. And think about that statement. It's not good for man to be alone. That's the first time in the book of Genesis that something is identified as not good. Everything else so far has been good. God created this and called it good. God created that and called it good. God finished creation and it was very good. But here we see something that isn't good. Now, it's possible to read too much into that statement. It's not good for man to be alone. It's possible to read too much into it and assume that it's not good for anyone to be unmarried. Well, we'll talk about that here in just a moment. 
But the point is, to meet Adam's need for a helper, God creates a woman. God creates Eve from Adam's flesh. And in Adam and Eve's relationship, we see God's original, good, beautiful, glorious design for marriage. But here's the problem. It wouldn't stay that way forever. Adam and Eve's marriage wouldn't remain perfect. No other marriage in Scripture would ever be perfect. Your marriage isn't perfect, and my marriage isn't perfect. Why? Well, consider the timing of the passage. All of this has occurred before sin enters the world. And once that occurs, God's good design for marriage will be subject to corruption and decay and impurity. But the point is this. If you're looking for God's good design for marriage, Genesis 1 and 2 is where you look. One male and one female, together forming one flesh, living in perfect harmony with God, perfect harmony with creation, and perfect harmony with each other. It says they were naked and unashamed. Throughout the rest of Scripture, whenever someone is naked, it's used to describe guilt or shame or punishment, something like that. But here it's good because sin hasn't entered the world yet. And Adam and Eve are in harmony with each other, with creation, and with God. Well, that brings us to Matthew chapter 19, the second passage that we're going to look at this morning. A very important passage for us as we look to understand marriage. Now, again, the timing is very important. We're now much farther in the future, well after sin has entered the world. And sin has really done a number on the world. It's really done a number on God's people created in his image and has done a number on marriage as well so matthew chapter 19 verse 3 and pharisees came up to him him being jesus and tested him by asking is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause he answered have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So Jesus is walking around, teaching, preaching, healing, do all in the stuff that Jesus does. And the Pharisees, the men who are supposed to be shepherding God's people, are spending all their time trying to trip him up instead. And because the Pharisees are trying to test him, the conversation that we're seeing is already a little bit tainted, isn't it? It seems as though little good is going to come out of this conversation, at least for the Pharisees, because they're not actually looking to learn. They're not actually looking to be challenged. They're not actually looking to think or be challenged by this messenger from God, God in the flesh. They're not looking for any of that stuff. They're simply being jerks. They're simply trying to get Jesus to say something wrong. Now, specifically, they want to know how Jesus deals with Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. 
I mean, it's Deuteronomy. That's the word of God, right? That's God-breathed scripture. You can't just sidestep that if you're Jesus. Well, they're wanting to know what he thinks about that because there were all kinds of debates raging in that day about what what constituted legitimate grounds for a man to divorce his wife, for a man to send his wife away. Could you divorce her only for adultery? Or was it a little more open-ended than that? Could you divorce for bad cooking? Could you divorce for wrinkles under her eyes? Could you divorce for rooting for the Cubs along with all the other bandwagon fans this year? What constitutes legitimate divorce? Well, in his response, Jesus immediately turns them back to, well, what do you know? He turns them back to Genesis. The passage we just read, specifically verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Jesus reminds the Pharisees of God's original design for marriage before sin entered the picture. And for Jesus, that is the design. That is the ideal. That is the goal to be strived for. And anything less than that is a tragedy. Anything less than that is simply the wrong starting point. Jesus is telling the Pharisees that if their top priority is sitting back and asking, okay, what's the bare minimum that I have to do for me to divorce my wife and technically not be doing anything wrong? What's the bare minimum that she has to do wrong when I can get away with this? And Jesus makes it clear that if that's where you're starting, then you're simply asking the wrong question. Look back to the original design. That's the priority. But what about Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4? Again, you can't just sidestep that. What about Moses? Clearly there is some justification for divorce in a sinful world or else that passage wouldn't exist, right? Well, Jesus again simply reminds them that divorce is never the ideal. It was never part of God's original plans for marriage. And the reason that passage exists is because God knew that sin would destroy marriages. God knew that realistic concessions had to be made for when marriages were tragically dissolved through man's sin. Now, the one clear circumstance where Jesus does hold out divorce as a legitimate yet still heartbreaking option is in the case of adultery. But the point is this. Jesus refocused the Pharisees' eyes on God's good design for marriage before sin entered the world. That's what God's people are to look to right now as we live out our marriages as God's people today. Now, will that goal always be achieved? No. There are circumstances where divorce should be considered. But even then, it is permitted, not encouraged. You notice the Pharisees said that Moses commanded us to send our wives away. Jesus says, no, Moses permitted you to send your wives away. It was not the ideal. And when it must be considered, even then, it is to be entered into with great mourning and great humility And great repentance. But there's more Jesus has to say in Matthew 19, starting in verse 10. The disciples then said to him, 
If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs that have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now, on a somewhat lighter note, after all that heavy teaching on divorce from Jesus, we see the disciples' response that's a little bit funny when you think about it. After all this intense teaching about marriage, the disciples look at Jesus and say, tell you what, this is heavy stuff, and if this is how serious marriage really is, I'm better off just sticking with being a bachelor. And Jesus kind of says, yeah, you know what? Maybe you're right. Jesus makes a serious response to their somewhat joking question. And simply put, Jesus' response is that marriage isn't for everyone. He gives the examples of eunuchs, people who in the ancient world would have physical alterations done to their bodies, preventing them from having a sexual relationship according to God's good original design of marriage. Now, back then, sometimes a person became a eunuch against their will. That was a brutal and cruel practice. But sometimes people became eunuchs out of their own volition. And yet Jesus says that even eunuchs, those who for whatever reason are incapable of being in a marriage according to God's design, even those people can still have a place in his kingdom. Joshua read that passage about the Ethiopian eunuch before Nate got baptized. That eunuch had a place in God's kingdom. And Jesus says these eunuchs can have a place as well. Now, why is that important? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, it's important because Christians have often been guilty of turning marriage into an idol. We have been guilty of treating marriage as if it is God's plan for everyone. Yet, according to Jesus and according to Paul, for that matter, in 1 Corinthians, it might not be God's plan for you. And we have mistakenly sent the message that a healthy marriage is the ultimate goal of life. It's the ultimate source of joy and happiness and contentment when simply it isn't. God has always been those things. God is those things now, and God will be those things in the future, whether you're married or not. And Jesus makes it clear on top of that that there is absolutely no shame in being married. Rather, being unmarried. No shame in being married either. The point is that some want to get married, but they won't get married. There are people out there who wish they could be in a marriage that meets God's design, but they aren't. Because they struggle with various forms of sexual sin. Because of things outside of their control. Because they struggle with something like homosexual practice. But those people who do not experience marriage for whatever reason, they are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. They are not defective. They are not freaks. God has a place for singles in his kingdom. And God can use singles in his kingdom regardless of the reasons why they might be single. Marriage is not an idol worth worshiping. And God can use anyone he wants in his kingdom, whether they're married or not, and for whatever reason or not. 
So God has this design for marriage, yet because of sin, that design isn't always lived out in our world. But God still does have a place for singles in his kingdom service. But that does bring us to the third and final passage, Ephesians chapter 5. Now again, consider the timing. We're talking about after the death and resurrection of Christ. The Genesis passage was before sin. The Matthew passage was after sin. This passage is after the cross and after the resurrection. And that shapes how we understand the passage. So let's start reading Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So now we're really getting practical, right? Ephesians chapter 5. But before we put up our defenses, again, remember the timing. This is after the cross, after the resurrection. And the cross and the resurrection of Christ changes everything. And that includes our marriages. Now, Paul does instruct wives to submit to their husbands out of obedience to Christ. And some people might read that, especially if you're a woman and your defenses will go up. And that might not be a bad thing. If you read that and your defenses go up because you've seen people abuse this passage and exploit their wives, and treat their wives as something less than a person with God's image bared upon them, then your defenses should go up, if that's how you've seen this passage practiced. Now, if you shoot up your defenses because you simply don't like the idea of submission to someone else, or because you simply value your individual freedoms over all else in this life, then maybe that's something you might need to get over. But if you don't like this passage because it's been abused, we can't blame you. We're right there with you. This church would be right there with you. Paul would be right there with you. How do we know Paul would be right there with us? Because look at what he says immediately following those words about submission. He makes it clear that this passage is not justification for abuse and domination and selfishness on the part of husbands. We see it very clearly in the words that he says. He tells his wives, his tells these husbands rather, to love their wives as Christ loved the church. 
So for that man out there who says, okay, so I can oppress and I can dominate, I can treat her like a slave so long as I get her flowers from time to time and try to keep the bills paid and don't cheat, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because the love that Paul calls husbands to have for their wives is a cross-shaped love. And a cross-shaped love, the kind of love that Christ showed for the church, has absolutely no room for selfishness and exploitation and oppression and domination. You look at Christ's love for the church, and does his love for the church look like that? No. Christ died for the church. And Paul says, husbands, that's what love looks like. It's not just as simple as buying flowers or paying the bills or doing some things from time to time just to keep up appearances in your marriage. That's not a cross-shaped love. A cross-shaped love is dying for your spouse the way Christ died for the church. That's the love that Paul calls husbands to have. Oppression and selfishness and domination have absolutely no harbor in that kind of love. And then what do you know? Paul takes us back to Genesis again. Genesis 2, 24. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, Paul seems especially concerned with the line about the two becoming one flesh. That's why Paul takes sexual sin so seriously. Because sex is not just something that you do for fun. It's not just something that you do out of pleasure. It's not just something you do to find out if you're compatible for the long run. That's not what it's about. Sex is a spiritual bond between two people created in God's image. A bond that is only meant to exist within the context of marriage. So Paul tells men to love their wives like their own flesh. Because really she is your own flesh. In the words of theologian Frank Sinatra, I've got you under my skin, is the idea. So, okay, we've got it. But what's so different about marriage now that Christ has been raised? Remember we said that everything is different following the cross and the resurrection? Well, what's so different about our marriages? What's changed? Well, what's changed is that our marriages... Your marriage, my marriage, every marriage between two followers of Jesus. Those marriages can show everyone around us the nature of the gospel. Our marriages are meant to serve as living, breathing examples of the gospel. The church's submission to Christ. Christ's love for the church. Your marriage and my marriage are living and breathing examples of that. Your marriage and my marriage communicate something to the world about the character of God and about the love of Christ. Our marriages are not just a private matter, but instead they're a testimony to the world about the legitimacy of the gospel. And that's why Paul, that's why Jesus That's why church leaders today have a vested interest in your marriage and in my marriage. Because our marriages are a form of public witness about God's character and Christ's love. And we absolutely do not take that responsibility and that privilege lightly as God's people. So you put it all together, and the point is this. 
Marriage matters in our everyday lives. It matters. Our marriages matter to us as individuals, the people in the marriage. Our marriages matter to the church as a whole. Our marriages even matter to society at large. And for most of us, this is the most practical relationship that you will ever have. This is the person that you will share prayers and hopes and dreams and fears and strengths and weaknesses with. This is the person who you will share your body with, your finances with, and occasionally you'll share your toothbrush with them. And that relationship, this marriage relationship, can be used by God to display his wisdom and glory and character. Our marriages can be used by God to give people just the tiniest glimpse of what the gospel is really all about. Our marriages display the gospel to each other. They display the gospel to those who will come after us. They display the gospel to our brothers and sisters in Christ, married or unmarried. And they display the gospel to a longing and confused and still watching world. So I pray that every single one of us would use our marriages not just for our own self-fulfillment, not just for our own romance, not just because it makes sense economically, but that we would let our marriages be a tool in the hand of God to show the people around us something about who he is, something about the love of Christ, something about who he, has, who he is in the past, who he is in the present, and who he is in the future. Something about what he has done in the past and what he's doing in the present and what he will do in the future. Our marriages are not just about us. Our marriages are about God. And I pray that every single person who meets us would learn a little bit about God by examining how we love our spouses. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the gift of marriage. Those of us who are married know that it can be a wonderful, humbling, glorious gift from you. But Father, I also pray that we would have the right perspective on our marriages. That our marriages are not about us. They're about you. So, Father, I pray that our marriages would communicate something to a watching world about who you are and the things that you care about and the desires that you have. Father, I pray that, again, we would practice these marriages with a great sense of awe, with a great sense of humility also understanding the great privilege, but also the great responsibility we have in our marriages and to this world that is watching us. I pray that we would learn to submit to each other, that we would love each other, that the body of Christ would be built up through our marriages, and that your gospel would be displayed through our marriages in even the most practical and simple ways. Again, we thank you for your son Jesus because his cross and his resurrection changed everything. It changed our eternal fate. It changed our standing before you. Because of that event, we are now your sons and your daughters. We are your children. 
We are slaves and servants to the things that bring us joy, not slaves and servants to empty promises that the world throws at us. So, Father, thank you that the cross changed everything, including our marriages. I pray that we would continue to practice wisdom and discernment as we learn what it looks like to offer our bodies to you as living sacrifices in the most practical matters of our lives. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.